Welcome back, Crosswalk. It's good to see you again. And for those of you who were with us, at least on our Redlands campus for Easter, thank you for coming. It was just an incredible day, an incredible blessing. It was hot. Um, it was beautiful, but it was warm. And for our other campuses, Clinton, I know you guys did stuff, Chattanooga, Portland, there was so much happening all across the United States on our Crosswalk campuses. So anyway, just thanks for being there. It was exciting. And this week in our county here in San Bernardino County, we moved into the orange. So that means that we will be able to put 50% capacity in our room. There will be masks, there will be distancing, there will be all the safety precautions, there will be registration, but our plan is to begin May 1 here in Redlands, California, meeting again. And we will see if we need two or three services as we begin, but we'll keep you updated on all that information. So anyway, I hope, it's a, I hope it was a good thing for you. I hope you had a wonderful Easter. And we're excited to jump back into our series called Christian. And we've been talking about our identity as a Christian and what that means. But I wonder if today we might want to use a different word. I wonder if we might want to use the word disciple. And disciple is kind of a tough word if you want to know the truth. The reason why is because nobody really knows what it means. I mean, we think it means followers, it does, learner, yeah, student. And it does mean that, but it means much more than that. And as you know, many churches are, are you know, invested in their discipleship programs. I get asked that question a lot. What is Crosswalk's discipleship program? And there's lots of curriculum. There's lots of different things that we're supposed to do and move us from one direction to another. But maybe we should ask the earlier question rather than, you know, what do you do as a disciple? Maybe we should ask the first question, which is how did or how does one become a disciple? And this is important because we have biblical precedent for it. But Here's one of the things with the word disciple and discipleship programs. Churches have done them for years, and there's this kind of expected outcome that if you run someone through a program, then they'll get to this point. I just don't know if Christianity works that way. I have a hard time believing that once you get to a certain point, then you're no longer a disciple, you're no longer engaged in discipleship. No, discipleship is something that you will always be engaged in if you are a Christian. But when it begins, it begins by one way and one way only. It begins by invitation. They all start from invitation. And not all invitations are the same. In Scripture, we see at least five different models of invitations, some that aggregate on each other. But I got to tell you, when we talk about invitations, one of the most important things is how you are invited. In fact, how you are invited to something is almost as important as to what you are invited to, because there's lots of different ways you can be invited to things. Have you ever had a pity invite? You know, where somebody walks in the room and you happen to be in the room and they're like, hey man, are you coming to the party? They're talking to your friend. Are they coming to the party? We hope you're going to be there. We can't wait to see you. And then they see you in the room and they're like, oh you can come too. You never know how to answer that, right? Because what you want to say is, don't invite me because you pity me. And then you think, well, I kind of want to go to that party. And so you want to be kind of gracious. So you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll see if I can make it, right? Pity invites are the worst. What we like is the excited invite. When somebody walks in the room and goes, listen, I got to tell you, there's this thing happening. I want you to be there. It's important. Even if they don't know the date, right? Somebody's getting married and they're like, you just have to be there. Just save the date. It'll be next year sometime. 
That's the kind of invitation you want. Or how about a late invitation? That late invitation is one of those things that you wonder, you know, you always wonder, did, was I supposed to be invited? Was I not supposed to be invited? Did it get lost in the mail or did it never get mailed? How does that work? We like the early invite. Again, that's something that leads to excitement. We like the personal invite. That's always something that's nice when somebody handwrites something or brings it to you in particular. We don't like the mass invite so much when you're not sure, did this person actually know my name or did they just send everybody on this one contact list? I have no idea. The way you are invited, how you are invited to something is almost as important as what you are invited to. Not as important, but almost as important. Now, we know that Jesus kind of invited in five different ways when he took, when he reached out to his disciples. And the first one I love because the first one is kind of this. It's kind of, come and see. This is the first invitation, and it's kind of one of curiosity. We see it in John chapter 1, starting with verse 36. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, as you know. It says this, as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. Now, this is John the Baptist, and this is six, week, six weeks or so after the baptism, and it's when Jesus has come back from the desert. So John is with his disciples and he says, look there, and some texts say behold, which is always a great way to say that, behold or look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, they were like, well, let's follow Jesus. They, they, they were like, well, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what this means. What does it mean that the Lamb of God is right here? So they begin to follow Jesus, but it seems like it was a little bit of an awkward exchange because they're following Jesus and Jesus turns around and goes, what do you want? Which is not an auspicious way to invite somebody. He says, what do you want? And they replied, Rabbi, which does mean teacher, where are you staying? They're hesitant, but that curiosity kept them interested. And Jesus says to them in verse 39, come and see. And it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. They went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. So they hung out, they had dinner together or tea as some people call it. They had dinner, they had tea, they hung out, they sat by the campfire or wherever he was. They sat by whatever it was to have fellowship. And they, he, see, Jesus assuaged their curiosity. And at the end of their visit, Andrew goes straight to his brother, Simon Peter, telling him, listen, we found the one that is the Messiah. We found the one that is the Christ. So that come and see invitation, by the way, the way this plays out in our lives, when we invite somebody to become a disciple, there's lots of times where people aren't sure what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes the come and see invitation is one of the best invitations we can give. Just come and check it out. We've said this for a long time at Crosswalk. Our promise to you is that we will not embarrass you when you bring somebody to church. They will have the kind of experience that they can walk away with something that's a blessing for them, whether it's the sermon, whether it's the music, whether it's the fellowship, whether it's the coffee, it doesn't matter. Something is going to bless them while they're here. Come and see, check it out, assuage your curiosity. The second way Jesus would give an invitation sometimes is a direct declaration of just follow me. And by the way, what does it mean to follow someone? We need to ask this question a little bit, right? A disciple is a follower, but a disciple is also a learner. So we need to make sure that both of those aspects are involved when it, becomes, when it comes time to follow someone. It's not just like Instagram, which made it easy to become a follower of someone. And, and TikTok made it even easier than that. 
Following Jesus is a whole different and radical approach to life. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, in the Gospels, the very first step a man must take is an act which radically affects his whole existence. When you come and follow Jesus, it means that everything is about to change. It means that everything must change. The third way that Jesus has a tendency to invite people is this one, and this is very particular, but I think we can expand it. It's come fishing. It's on the job training. You want to come? I got something for you to do. We don't wait to follow. You need to get busy. And we know this story from Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. One day Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, the ones we were talking about before. They were throwing their net into the water because they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them. He's like, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. You're going to do the same job, but in such a different setting, it's not going to feel the same anymore. In fact, Jesus can take what we are best at and use it for the kingdom. Because the skills you have are the skills that he needs. It's not that he couldn't do it without you. We know that to be true, of course. But it's because he loves what it is that you're passionate about. He loves what it is that you do. So when he says, come follow me, he says, come follow me in the context of which you live your life. I may take you out of it, but I may not. You may be a mailman and I may ask you to follow me as a mailman. But rather than mailing packages, you'll be mailing people. Does that work? No, maybe it's a little weird. But I hope you understand the point. The point is come fishing. Do what it is you do, but do it for me. And then what happens in Matthew 4.20 is that they left their nets at once and they began to follow him. They were still doing the same job, but they were catching people with a very different net, the net of the gospel, the net of the good news. Everything had changed, but they still had the same thing. They were aggregating things to them and people to them. And then right after this, he walks up the shore a little bit and he he bids James and John to follow him, and they did at once as well. Now, I think these three ways are really exciting, but the fourth way is a little bit tougher. The fourth way is that we're to deny self, right? Jesus says this, we need to deny self. And this kind of defines the radical upside-down nature of the movement that Jesus was developing and perhaps this was the worst way to recruit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, the truth of the matter is that the whole world has already been turned upside down by the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't building this world. He was building a better one, right? But he also said you have to deny yourself. Matthew 16, 24 says it this way, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. You must deny those things. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, this recruitment strategy is very different. Not what you would do to get people to try and join a movement. No promises of easy, just promises of hard. I mean, could you imagine if we asked people to marry us that way? If we got down on one knee and said, listen, this is going to be the worst thing that you've ever done in your life. There'll be a blessing to it because I'm a pretty good person, but this is not going to be easy. That's not the way anyone wants to be invited into something. Jesus did this again and again and again. You know, as people came to him and said, I want to follow you, he says, listen, there's no I have no place to lay my head. I want to follow you, but I want to bury my parent. Nope. If, if you're going to do that, there's no place for you in the kingdom. 
it's a, it's a hard call. There's this cost, right? But it's still an invitation. And then the fifth way that we are invited into a discipleship, I don't even want to say journey. I don't even like that. A, a lifetime of discipleship is that we are invited to receive the Spirit. And this is an invitation to replicate His mission because we're given the Holy Spirit to empower and give us clarity in what we are to do for Christ. It is an invitation not to sit, but to be sent. John 20, says it simply like this, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We know Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still alive and well and working in our lives today. It may not take a bombastic approach that it did in Pentecost. It may be the quiet movement of God in your heart, but that is still the work of the Holy Spirit. Just because it's quiet, don't deny it. It doesn't have to be explosive, even though sometimes it can be. I have a tendency to think, and maybe this is just a caveat, I have a tendency to think that it's not going to be explosive in your life until you've gotten used to the quiet movements of God in your life and the quiet reception of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then in John 14, 12, he says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. This is why he left us with the Holy Spirit. So the invitation to receive the Holy Spirit is a really palpable and important invitation because we're enabled to do all this work with clarity and with power by the Holy Spirit who guides us and keeps us on the path that we've been given. It's almost as if, well, you know, people climb Mount Everest, right? And, and it seems that that's a pretty difficult thing to do. Certainly, I'm not sure that I would do it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. However, what we always forget is that there's a Sherpa who goes along with everyone who is climbing, or at least with every group who's climbing. The Sherpas run that route up Everest often, and they do it tirelessly. Some do it with oxygen, some do it without oxygen. They know the route. The Holy Spirit is like a Sherpa for us in our lives in some respects giving us clarity, telling us where to go, and helping to empower us to get there. I mean, I remember the first time I even heard that there were Sherpas. I thought people just climbed Everest themselves. And once I heard there were Sherpas, I was less impressed with the climbers and much more impressed with the Sherpas. And maybe that's the way it should be in our lives. When we are invited to receive the Holy Spirit, we aren't invited to take all the credit we're invited to partner with God in getting to where we need to go. The truth is, accepting the invitations of Jesus to be disciples is what set these men apart from just everyone else. It wasn't their brilliance, it wasn't even their faithfulness, but their willingness to come and see and follow and learn and obey. Just one more quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You can't talk about discipleship without talking about this book or using some quotes from this book. So if you haven't read it, you need to, The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, how impossible, how utterly absurd it would be for the disciples, these disciples, such men as these, to try and become the light of the world. No, they are already light 
And the call has made them so. The invitation has made them light. If you want to be light to the world, it's not because you figured out some great secret. It's because you have been called into the light. This is good news for us because we might just have more competency and more influence than these guys did, and yet they changed the world. But Bonhoeffer was right. Even in just the title of his book, there is a cost. Because being a disciple is not a point in time, but a long obedience in the same direction, as Peterson says. 1 Peter 4.16 says it this way, it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Suffering at times, the denial of self for sure. Learning, growing, following, obeying. All of these things are part of what it means to be a disciple. And I got to tell you, after all that, why do it? And I think it's a good question. We become disciples, but that means we start the long arc of obedience towards Christ. We continue to learn. We give everything because, well, I'll just quote scripture for you. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the clouds said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And then this last little phrase that God says, one of the few times God speaks in the New Testament at all, listen to him. So maybe a disciple is a listener. And, and I got to tell you, you know, if you have kids, you know what, even if you have friends, that are going down a path, you want them to listen to you so badly so they won't have to make the same mistakes that you have made. They won't have to make the same choices that you've made. They can do better than you. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. A disciple? Maybe that's what it means to be a disciple, to listen differently. And by the way, when we do that, man, our lives should be transformed. Even if that transformation is slow, and ponderous at times, we should be transformed. We should be transformed into a different kind of people, the kind of people that we've been talking about the whole time, who show us who Christ is, who find an identity in Christ so deep that that's the only label they're interested in carrying. It's not this and, it's not that and. It's not an assumption that if you are something, you are a Christian. It is that, that Christian identification, that disciple identification is so clear in you. You know exactly who you are in the universe. You know exactly who you serve and you are continually learning who Jesus is. Could you imagine a world full of people who were most interested in knowing Jesus better. What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it be like? Would the world be so divided? Perhaps not. I can't imagine that it would be because we'd be finding shared values in the work that we do, discovering the values of Jesus, discovering the behaviors of Jesus. And no, we can't assume that everybody's going to understand things exactly the same way, but we can do this, believe that the Holy Spirit, as we receive him, will guide us into that truth. But that only happens if we can maintain a focus on learning about and from Jesus. And that's what makes us a disciple. And that's what makes us a Christian.
Let's bow our heads. Lord of learning, I don't know that I've ever called you that before. But Lord, you created in us a great capacity to learn, to be curious, to understand. And then you went and invited us to get to know you. That means that we're a disciple. And I don't think it's a curriculum as much as it is a decision and an obedience and a trajectory. But Lord, that trajectory only happens as as you've said, if we focus on you and you alone. So Lord, may we do that. May we as a congregation, as we look to come back and worship together, may we look to put aside any other label that we might have and take on that discipleship label, which is a humble label, a label that says, I don't know it all. I can't know it all, but I will seek to know better. Lord, may we put that on as we come back together because some of us have been deeply divided over the last year on a myriad of things. But Lord, may we come together in the understanding that we have more to learn about you, more time to spend together in fellowship with you, and more grace to receive from you. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit so we might be empowered to see you beyond anything else. In your name I pray. Amen.